Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We pray especially this morning for Becky George uh, as she is, Lord willing, delivering uh, their son, and we pray that you would grant safety and encouragement and joy at the end of this. Uh, We pray in Christ's name, amen. So, and if you are not, if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, And we're going to look at this passage in the context of Bonhoeffer's call to discipleship. This is his sixth chapter in the book, is, is focusing on the Beatitudes. So before we get started, I just want to let you know that uh, 7.30 this morning, we got a text uh, from Eric George that Becky is in Loudoun Hospital. She's dilated to about seven centimeters, and uh, so Meredith... Uh, is her doula, and so she is there with Becky right now, and uh, I know they would covet our prayers. Uh, this is obviously Eric and Becky's first, and so I know they would appreciate our prayers for a speedy and safe delivery. But uh, as we turn our attention to the cost of discipleship, Before I ask someone to read the passage, so hopefully this is, you haven't really looked at the passage yet, but the text is famous. It's well known. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, it opens with the Beatitudes. So now here's my first question of you. Who is the audience for the Sermon on the Mount? Who is Jesus speaking to? The Pharisees? Any other guesses? He's certainly speaking about them. So that's the correct answer, at least in my mind, and maybe in other people's minds too. Uh, certainly when you've seen, if you've seen any, you know, television, uh, representation of the Sermon on the Mount, is it not Jesus standing there and delivering this sermon to the crowds of people that are sitting there in front of it? And that's actually not the audience. The audience is not the crowds. And that's an important distinction, and Bonhoeffer will make a a significant point out of that distinction. But look at verse 1. And and so could someone go ahead and just read for me uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. So the, the setting is an important part of the message. Because Bonhoeffer has been speaking about what it means to be a disciple. And his point is that to be a disciple, first and foremost, means to be called and to respond. That's what a disciple is. You must first be called by Christ and you must respond to that call. And so even here in the Sermon on the Mount, you're seeing... 
the calling out. The disciples seeing the crowds, he calls the disciples out from the crowd. So these are people who have already been called by him. He's, he's, he's gone, he's, he's told them, come and, and, and follow me. And they've responded to that call. But again, that call is what is emphasized here. It's the distinction between the disciples and the crowd. And of course, the crowd is the visible church. The crowd are the children of Israel. They are all there as Israelites. They're all there as followers of Jehovah God, and they're listening to this rabbi who comes from God. And so this is very much in the context of the people of God. And this man stands up in front of the people of God, the crowds, and he says to his disciples, come here, I've got special, I've got this teaching is for you. The the parallel passage, by the way, is Luke 6. And Luke makes this point also. So it's, a, it's, it's an important point. People often rush over it. As, as I said, you know, every television presentation or whatever representation of the Sermon on the Mount has a whole mob of people sitting there listening to Jesus speaking. But the gospel accounts actually don't. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, and again here in Matthew chapter 5, it's very explicit that this message is given to his disciples. And to his disciples, he opens with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, Matthew, Matthew's account, says poor in spirit. Luke, Luke chapter 6, simply says, blessed are you who are poor. Now, Bonhoeffer brings this out. It goes all the way back to Clementine, uh, one of the one of the very earliest church fathers, one of the the Western uh, theologians. It goes all the way back to Clementine, and it's this idea that there's something extra spiritual about poverty, and so in the uh, you know part part of the the vows of service in the church, in the Roman Catholic Church, some part of the vows of service are a vow of poverty. It's a, it's a renunciation of all worldly goods. And they, they take the passage, particularly in Luke 6, uh, as an example, or as, as a, you know, this is why you're called to be poor, uh, if you are a disciple of God, if you're a, a follower of God. But Bonhoeffer points out, and I think he's absolutely correct, the focus here, both in Matthew chapter 5 and in Luke, is, is not that this righteousness, this blessing, because that's what the Beatitudes are. You are blessed. So the blessing is not, and this is, this is foundational to the entire gospel. The blessing is not a result of human behavior. 
It's not that in making ourselves poor, we are blessed. And if I don't make myself financially or spiritually poor, I am not blessed. But rather, the blessing is 100%. This response to Jesus' call. And that poverty that is manifest in your response to Jesus' call is a poverty that extends far beyond simply what's in your bank account. It's, it's a poverty that extends to who you are, to who I am. Apart from Christ, I have no wisdom, I have no riches, I have no possession, I've got nothing. And there is nothing that will stand between me and Jesus Christ. And so that's the poverty that brings blessing. The one who is truly a beggar before Christ. And that's why both in Matthew, we can say the poor in spirit, as well as in Luke, simply the poor. Blessed are the poor, or blessed are the poor in spirit. We're not saying there's something more spiritual about the person who can't make their rent this month. That's, that's not what he's saying. <laughs> there, there's not something closer to God about the person that doesn't have a mortgage. Uh, you're not more dependent upon God uh, than the person who does have a mortgage. That's not the point uh, that, that Jesus is making here. The point that Jesus is making here is simply a continuation of if there is anything, mother, father, lands, reputation, career, anything that you want to add to your discipleship, then you're not weighing the cost. Discipleship costs everything. And so the poor, the poverty, or the, the, the poverty stricken are those who are blessed, and they're blessed in context of Jesus being the source of all of our wealth, all of our wisdom, all of our knowledge, everything. And so Bonhoeffer's point is that this poor in spirit, the, the poverty, is you in discipleship, you who would be a disciple of Jesus Christ, are called to renounce absolutely every other treasure. There is no treasure other than the pearl of great price. Unless you are seeing your absolute bankruptcy, then you won't really grab Jesus as tenaciously. And, and so, you know, to give a, a poor analogy, if you think of you're out on the lake swimming, or maybe water skiing. You're out on the lake water skiing. You fall in the water, and somebody tosses you the rope, the, the tow rope, and you grab onto it, and you pull yourself back into the boat. A different scenario is you're out on the water. A sudden storm has come up. The boat, ha you've just gotten blown over the side of the boat. You're floundering. You're screaming. Somebody throws you the exact same piece of rope. 
Are you going to grab it in the exact same manner as you would if you're water skiing? If, if I'm afraid of drowning, I'm going to grab that tow rope. I'm going to wrap my arms around it. I'm going to wrap it around my waist. <laughs> I'm going to make sure that if I am passed out, drowning, they still are going to be able to drag me onto that boat because I'm so tangled up in that stupid rope. We cling to things much more tightly when we recognize that without that thing, we are dead. And, and that's the poverty. That's the, that's the awareness that you and I, as disciples, are called to have. And Bonhoeffer uh, goes through, I'm not going to go through the entire Beatitudes. I think it's, I think it's worthwhile, and I will say it, it right up front. I don't think Bonhoeffer gives us a completely exhaustive treatment of the Beatitudes. Uh, but, but he is dialing in or drilling down on one thing in particular, and that is your personal engagement in the Beatitudes. Uh, that, that's Bonhoeffer, that's what he's really wanting to come away from, uh, or wanting you to come away from as we look at the Beatitudes is you who are the disciple is the one that Jesus is speaking to in the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, he's calling us to a life of discipleship. Again, let me just real quickly mention, I think the church, not just the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the, the church more broadly, uh, has, has missed what the Beatitudes are. Uh, or, or at least when I say the Roman Catholic Church, I'm speaking specifically with that issue of the first beatitude and then its parallel in Luke and the Roman Catholic Church using this as a proof text for uh, the, the monastic vow of poverty uh, or the priestly vocational vow of poverty. Uh, but In the more uh, dispensationalist church that, that my background is more in, the Beatitudes were seen as this perfect standard, are seen as this perfect standard of righteousness that Jesus Christ is saying, this is what kingdom righteousness is. And since you and I look at this and say, oh, I can't do that, we're, you know, it's, it's set up for us to show us our inability, this belongs under the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament law. And so Jesus is bringing to us the law. And you and I as believers don't need to worry about living up to the cost of the Beatitudes because we're under grace. And so this is one of the final, uh, final demonstrations uh, of Christ's ministry that you and I are incapable of following the law. And... Therefore, the law in its perfect holiness is set in front of us. We can't do it. Boom, push it out of the way. We need grace. All of that, eh, I would sort of agree with. I would just say they needed grace all the way back from Adam and Eve. <laughs> grace has always been the thing. Uh, and, and, and my dispensationalist brothers generally acknowledge that. But in looking at this as some perfect standard of God's law, and therefore something that is not really applicable to you and me, we do two things badly. We, we, we make two mistakes. The first is we don't feel the weight 
of this command pressing down upon us? Am I truly impoverished without Jesus Christ? In my head, maybe yes. In my head, maybe I can say, yep, you know, boy, if I didn't have Jesus, wouldn't, life wouldn't be worth living. Thank you, Jesus. We can say that in our head. But when we truly are impoverished, <laughs> when, when the stuff hits the fan and we don't immediately go to, how am I going to pay my way out of this? Or how am I going to think my way out of this? Or how am I going to, you know, how am I going to fix this? How am I going to, how am I going to fix this problem? If, if we don't immediately go to Christ, if we don't immediately come to Him, then we're not truly feeling that poverty. And, and I think God does bring us to that place often. And sadly, for some people like me, it requires more than once. Uh, bring us to that place of truly recognizing that we have nothing apart from Christ. And in the, in the same way, so each of these beatitudes, uh, so verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are they, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Bonhoeffer says, and again, remember, Bonhoeffer is German, uh, therefore Lutheran. Uh, and so a lot of Bonhoeffer's uh, wisdom that he's drawing from are going to be Martin Luther. They're, they're going to be uh, the, the documents of the Lutheran church. But he says... Luther correctly translate this So those who mourn are not simply those who are really really sad. Uh Jesus is not saying blessed are the really really sad for they'll be happy. Uh that that's not the beatitude. He's saying blessed are those who bear sorrow and and there's a expansion of this with the idea of martyrdom with the idea of bearing witness with the idea of being uh, of the of the world's opposition to us but this bearing sorrow bonhoeffer says the world dreams of progress And future, while the disciples meditate, and notice the contrast between the word meditate and dream. That's intentional. <laughs> a dream is a fantasy often. And, and the fantasy of progress, the fantasy of the future, I mean, Bonhoeffer is certainly living it. In World War II, uh, this is progress. This is the future. This is what we got. That's the world's fantasies. That's the world dream. But the disciples meditate on the end, the last judgment, and the coming of the kingdom. To such heights, the world cannot rise. The world is incapable 
of, of rising to the idea that God speaks in eternity. That, that there is an eternal God. That there is a telos to our created order. That there is a purpose. There's an end. There, there's, a, there's a bullseye that all creation is, is heading for. And, and Bonhoeffer closes this section. He says, the community of strangers find their comfort in the cross. They are comforted by being cast upon the place where the comforter of Israel awaits them. And, and that, I think, is just beautiful language. Our comfort, and this is going back to blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our comfort is not going to be connected in any way to this antithesis. The conflict between the world and the disciples. Our comfort is not that this is going to be resolved. Our comfort is not that the world is going to finally come around and see that we're right. Our comfort is is not that we eventually are going to conquer all this. Uh, that, that Christ Jesus is going to extend His reign and that everything will be... Co- Our comfort is that man, God-man, upon the cross in the worst mourning possible, bearing our sin, bearing our sorrows, bearing our pain and our suffering and our very death. And as we find ourselves united to him, as we meditate upon that relationship with him, then we are comforted when the rest of the world looks at us and says, your wisdom is wrong, your ethic is wrong, it's dangerous, we don't like this, you need to be standing on the side of the social discourse, you need to, you need to be off to the side, keep it to yourself, or even as it's continuing now, if you bring your Christian ethic. I mean, not to get political, but Amy Coney Barrett, uh, if you bring your religious persona into your workplace in any way, shape, or form, you are a terrorist and are dangerous to our society. If, if your religious values inform anything that you do, then you're evil and we need to get you out of here. Uh, our comfort is not that that is all going to be resolved. Our comfort is that we're united to Christ and that in the great sufferer, we find joy and we find healing. And so in this way, each of the Beatitudes is drawing us back to Jesus Christ. Now, this is completely an aside and a personal note. I think, one of the um, I'm not going to say shortfall, I'm not going to say deficiency because I don't disagree with anything that that Bonhoeffer is saying here, but I think one of the um, dangers in terms of our Christian ethic is when we are so identified with the crucified Christ that we 
forget that we are also identified with the resurrected reigning Christ. And I think this is kind of where neo-orthodoxy falls down. Uh, Neo-orthodoxy is really, really good in terms of saying that you and I have to have this personal religious engagement. It, it's not a set of principles. It's not a set of, of, uh, of, of this fact, that fact, the other fact. Orthodoxy is not how much you know. Orthodoxy is how much you walk, how much you obey, how much you are passionate, how, how, how much you love Jesus Christ. And, and so we do need to recognize that our identity and what we display to the world is the crucified Christ, but also the, re- the resurrected Christ the ascended Christ, the reigning Christ. And and this is where I think we can get a little off balance if we only focus on the crucified Jesus Christ to the exclusion of the reigning uh, Jesus Christ. And so, anyway, to to circle back to Bonhoeffer's treatment of the Beatitudes, uh, let me just read through these... uh, those who mourn uh, the meek. Uh, the, community, the community of disciples does not defend its members against the attacks of the world, but rather quietly bears the scorn and rejection. And I love this line. Again, this is a quote from Bonhoeffer. The renewal of the earth begins at Golgotha, where the meek one died. And from there, it will spread. And I think that's brilliant. <laughs> when, when, when we recognize that centered at Golgotha, Christ the great sufferer, Christ the great victim, Christ the one who is truly impoverished, Christ the one who is truly mourning, Christ the one who is truly meek, Christ the one who is truly being persecuted for righteousness sake, when we identify ourselves there, it changes the flavor of our Christianity as it's lived in the world. Um, and, and another interesting note that I just want to bring to your attention, uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Bonhoeffer makes an interesting argument here. He says, you know, mercy and being merciful specifically is the willingness to renounce my own dignity. I want to just pause on that for a minute. Think about that. To be merciful is the willingness to renounce my own dignity. Why? Because to be merciful means to identify myself with the absolutely broken. To identify myself with the outcast, with the sinner and the publican. And there's a great loss of dignity in that. There's a, there's a real loss of personal reputation. There's a real loss if, if I truly, if someone truly identifies me with the broken, with the, the outcast, with the undesirable, if that's my identity in someone else's mind, then it means giving up all of my own reputation. 
And this, Bonhoeffer says, is at the very heart of what mercy itself is. Mercy is to identify with the outcast. Uh, and he closes, he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they have the merciful one for their Lord. So, he closes this, this section of, on the Beatitudes by asking the question, is there any place on earth where this community is found, the community of those who are blessed, the community of those who are poor, the community of those who are merciful, the community of those who mourn? Uh, is, is there any place on earth where this community of people is found? And it's found ultimately, most closely, in Jesus Christ. And then, as his church truly reflects Jesus Christ, as his church is a reflection of Christ's ministry on this earth, then it becomes realized within the body of Christ, and it becomes a witness to the world. But if we start here with the Beatitudes, with recognizing what each one of them is is saying about that life of blessing, what each one of them is pointing us to in terms of that perfect one in whom we are perfectly blessed, then it will profoundly change our testimony to the world. We're not going to be coming to the world as the people who have all the answers, as the people who look down their noses at the broken. We're not going to come to the world as the people, uh, you know, every, every negative stereotype that you can think of the church. We're going to be engaging the world with the image of Christ. We're going to be projecting, or Christ is going to be projecting through us into the world as long as we are grounded here in recognizing we are absolute beggars without him. We identify with those who are also outcast and broken because we ourselves are outcast and broken. Uh, all, of, all of these things in the Beatitudes that he goes through. So uh, with that, I will close. Uh, just that one takeaway that, that I want to leave with you and that I think is Bonhoeffer's central point uh, in this passage is the Beatitudes are not for super-Christians and the Beatitudes are not for the multitudes. The Beatitudes are for his disciples, for you and me who will say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, this is what the blessed one looks like. This is what the life of blessing is. And that is very much the cost. Uh, again, we're not backing down from this one iota. It will cost you everything. It's a challenge uh, to you and to me, and it's a challenge we'll be faced with for as long as we draw breath uh, on this earth. So with that, let me uh, close this in prayer, and then we can go into our time of fellowship. Heavenly Father, in Christ we see that one who is our wealth, and the more we see our poverty, the more we see our treasure. He is that one who brings joy. And the more we find him as the source of our joy in contrast to him, the more we weep and mourn over the brokenness, over the pain, over our own sin. But Lord, would you help us to see that blessed one 
And would you help us, Lord, to then carry that good news, uh, carry that joy that the world will see on our faces and in our lives uh, into our daily actions. We pray in Christ's name.